And now, coming to you from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the final Coot Street podcast of 2015. This week, special guests Nisi Scholl and Charlie Jane Anders join us to continue our discussion <coughs> of the very best books of 2015. So, without further ado, it's time to get on with the Coot Street Podcast! And thank you both, um, uh, Nisi and Charlie, for, for, for agreeing to do this, and congratulations both for... Well, Charlie, you can't... You can't get on this year's list because All the Birds in the Sky, I guess, is a January book. We'll, we'll see how that goes, I guess. We'll see how that goes. The problem with a January book is that people have to remember it at the end of the following year to put it on a year's best list. So just so you know. Right. Um, yeah. But, I mean, but Nisi, the, the Stories for yeah. Chip is certainly one of the anthologies of the year. Uh, so I hope we're going to get to that. And I hope, uh, well, I hope both of you will have ideas that are... Uh, supplementary to and different from, and in some cases, similar to the ideas that Jonathan and I have already blathered about on this. Charlie, what were your impressions of 2015 overall? Well, in terms of books, I mean, one thing that's really leapt out at me a little bit lately, uh, looking back at the books that made the strongest impression this year, are the ones which uh, sort of use fantasy tropes and settings to actually deal with uh, things happening in the future or on other worlds that are sort of the more you dig into them and the more they're actually science fictional. Uh, definitely Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps uh, by Kaya Shante Wilson has that kind of feel. Uh, so does The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin. And I think there are a couple of other books like that this past year that uh, are actually have like a, uh, a fant- an epic fantasy feel to them, but are Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps and uh, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin both have this feeling of, of being um, having the, the trappings and the tropes of epic fantasy, but actually being science fiction, if you sort of dig into them, and having like science fictional ideas at their roots. And I think that that's a really neat idea that I'm really excited to see people exploring in books. I wonder if that's a little bit of the heritage of, of, of Gene Wolfe's influence, because certainly he was doing that. And I noticed that a couple of years ago, a few years ago, Ken Scholes' series did the same sort of thing. It looks like fantasy, but the more you unpack it, the more it turns into far future or far distant science fiction. Well, and like Roger Zelazny as well, I guess, did some of that. And, well, yeah. uh, and Jack Vance. Um, I think that there's there's a tradition of that, but I think it's, it's really exciting to see that coming back and to see it being done in ways that also are sort of subversive in other, in other ways. Yeah. I, I would like to say something about that if I may. Yep. Um, I have noticed that trend as well, and I attribute it to um, the, well, it's sort of like there's a blurring of the line between what is science and what is not. If you bring in people who are like more indigenous cultures, they're not necessarily going to agree with the standard uh, prototype of what science is. Well, and there's there's some of that in, in some of Le Guin's on the edge of things, uh, always coming home, for example. Is that really <laughs> science fiction? Is it anthropological fiction? Is it fantasy? So these ideas are becoming mainstream ideas. It's interesting because when we talk about it, we can talk about three or four or five writers over the last 20 or 30 years who've done that, but both of you seem to be saying that now it seems to be coming to the forefront. It's just a, it's, it's definitely something that I've noticed as sort of a pattern a little bit more this past year that I'm excited to see more of. Uh, and also, actually, you know, uh, The Mechanical by, by Ian Tregillis, 
I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which was one of my favorite uh, books that I've read this past year, was definitely one also where the sort of lines between, you know, the scientific and, and magical, it's sort of about alchemy, but it's also, it's got a very science fictional feel to it uh, mm-hmm. because of these automatons who, you know, behave in a manner sort of like robots almost. And some of the questions it's asking about free will feel very science fictional to me. Have you read uh, Nidia Korafor's Lagoon? Lagoon by Nidia Korafor? Uh, because it is a, sort of a science fictional narrative with the aliens invading, but there are also traditional African monsters um, that, that appear in, and are given just as much weight. I haven't actually read that. I've been dying to read it. I mean, it's on my pile of, it's on my list of books that I really want to read. Well, she, she also yeah. does, she uses a couple of interesting uh, storytelling techniques, which you find in African. She, there, there are chapters in the novel from the point of view of a swordfish, Gentlemen, from the point of view of everyone. a bumblebee. I think it's a bee or something. Uh, in other words, when she goes into the character or the point of view of an animal or an insect, you're left asking the question, well, is this science fiction or is it fantasy or is it folklore? Which is a good question to ask. I'm not uh, being critical at all. I thought, by the way, that Nettie was having a lot of fun with that. I think she really wanted to take one of the great science fiction cliches of the uh, giant spaceship landing over Washington or London or New York and simply by moving it to Lagos, Nigeria, change the dynamic entirely. I... I, I hope that you get to read that soon, Charlie Jane, because it really fits with uh, what you noticed um, with, with your sort of uh, theory of, of what's going on as far as trends. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. I, I, I it's one of, it's in the pile of like three or four books that I'm hoping to get to next. So I hope you know, fingers crossed. And how about you, Nisi? What did you? What was your feeling about 2015 overall? What I noticed was. Uh, a trend that was not necessarily about what got printed, but what got noticed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, probably influenced by the fact that I went to a few um, academic conferences. So that sort of slanted what I saw being seen, so to speak. Um, I, I, and the only other thing I'll say is that... Uh, I did also notice that we seem to be living more and more in the kind of world that I really didn't like reading about. Uh, (laughs) The reality TV shows and everything, it it really reminds me of, you know, some of the the, uh, grimmer James Tiptree Jr. stories and that sort of thing. What what I do want to ask you, and you, you talked about what's being noticed. I mean, we were talking last week about how Science fiction slowly and painfully seems to be becoming more internationalized. It seems to be paying attention to a more to a broader point of view. And even though it has a long way to go, at least it's making progress. Is that consistent with the kind of thing you were seeing? Absolutely. I do see, uh, for instance, in the U.S., more notice paid to um, Australian uh, publishing, for example, and I just was um, part of a launch of a magazine that uh, pretty much this is their mission is to be a venue for international science fiction. That's uh, Shattered Prism. I think that that's definitely part of of, uh, what I'm seeing is this broadening that you're talking about. And Gary, is there anything you want to add to your observations from last week? 
Uh, well, no, I, mean, I was going to pick up on something that, that Nisi was saying, which is not really about the fiction published this year, but it's about what this year looks like in terms of fiction, at least here in the United States. And because uh, uh, I get into conversations with non-science fiction readers, obviously we all do, and um, I, I'll hear things about, well, are, is the Hunger Games coming true? My usual response to that is, no, if you really want to know what the Republican primary season in the United States feels like, you need to read a novel called Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, which, which involves an outcome that you could now see as being possible, even though it was a nightmarish dystopia when she, when she wrote that. And it wasn't that long ago either. Well, well to, to circle around then, because I don't have a lot to add right at this moment, but we will in this next portion. We were going to talk about our, our, our favorite books of the year. So perhaps Charlie Jane, what were your five top books of science of 2015? Oh my gosh, <laughs> so hard to pick. And the, some of the best, some of the best books of the year I didn't get to read because if someone else reviewed them for IO9, I, I didn't want to to duplicate double up our efforts. Uh, but um, I mean, you know, I loved Sor- Sorcery of the Wildeeps, which I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. I loved the mechanical, which I already mentioned. I thought that that was just brilliant. Uh-huh. Um, I really loved A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. Um, I really loved The Entropy of jo- Bones by, by Aize uh, Jama Everett. Um, um, also Signal to Noise by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Um, and um, I mean, there's a whole bunch. Get in Trouble by Kelly Link, her story collection that came out this past mm-hmm. year was just brilliant. I mean, I've, I've I've always loved her work, but I thought this was actually her best stuff yet. So I was really blown away by that. Um, Other than the uh, the happenstance of them all coming in the, in the same year, is there something you see shared in the books you're reading? Common to them? Um, I mean, maybe sort of a playful approach to genre. Definitely I'm seeing, you know, there's some really interesting stuff going on with people starting to play with superhero tropes in a more interesting way. There, there were kind of straight-up superhero novels in previous years, but this year we had things like, you know, Aize uh, doing his, you know, very superhero-inspired action novel with a lot of mysticism, but then also Gwenda Bond doing these Lois Lane books that are just, you know, refreshing and thrilling. Um and, um, you know, just a playfulness, like Kelly Link, her book coming out around the same time as Uprooted by uh, mm. uh, Naomi Novik, uh, the, both seem like very sort of playful, interesting approaches to sort of folkloric fairy tale motifs. Um, you know, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's, uh, I, it's hard for me to sort of tease out a, an actual trend from all that, but... Uh, there definitely seems to be some, some fun playfulness going on. Okay. 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 Well, well, I mean, and, and, yeah, Gary. I was, uh, I was just going to say we could add to the superhero thing Nedio Corfor's The Book of Phoenix. Which oh, is, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a backstory, really, to, uh, to Who Fears Death, but it's a, it's a backstory in the form of a radicalized superhero, which is kind of a neat idea. Um, my other observation about what you about the books on your list is that superhero fiction, which once was considered kind of an offshoot, kind of a you know a prose version of a graphic novel. Hello. Yeah. Hi. I'm still here. Okay. Um, the other thing I think is interesting was interesting to me about the uh, 
uh, Silvia Marina Garcia novel, is that in most years that would, would have been published as essentially mainstream magic realism. And it seemed to emerge from our community more this year. So it's like we're, we're kind of absorbing other things. You know, the science fiction and fantasy world is, is kind of taking over part of the superhero world, is kind of taking over part of the magic realism world. Maybe we're on our way. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, I'm trying to remember who published Signal to Noise. Was it, it Solaris? It was Solaris, yeah. Yeah, Solaris. so it was published by a genre publisher, which I think was part of why it, it sort of was received as being a genre book. Um, it because it certainly could have been, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, Nisi, how about you? What were your, your top books of the year? Oh, do I have to just say five? Come on. Um, I um, I really loved uh, Sorcerer to the Crown, a fantasy by Zen Co. Yep. And because it's playing, it was playful, as Charlie Jane was saying. It was playing with some of the tropes, the same tropes that uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell played with. Um, and I adored the sort of Georgette Hayer-esque-ness of it. Um, I loved uh, three hard SF books, I guess you would call them, that are, two of them at least, I feel are in conversation with each other inadvertently. Um, Tim Stanley Robinson's Aurora and Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves. Um, hmm. I, I read one right after the other, and um, I really enjoyed Neil Stevenson's, and then I read... Stands and uh, I thought, well, okay, so one of these is a cartoon and one of these <laughs> is actually, uh, it's actually uh, much more uh, hyper-realist than the other um, would be Stan. Uh, I enjoyed them both, though. I still uh, think fondly of Neil Stevenson made it fun to read about page after page of orbital mechanics. Yeah. How, how many writers can do that? <laughs> Not many. Not many at all. But first Although I should that, mention... Like, I've, uh... Oh, go ahead. Sorry? Oh, uh, I was going to say the third... Go ahead, Nisi. Okay. Uh, the third uh, one that I really enjoyed uh, that was a hard science fiction novel with Carolyn Ives Gilman's Dark Orbit, uh, which is a tour book. She uh, did things with with disability and with um, uh, holds and folding in space, holds in space, and also with uh, communities' uh, perceptions of reality uh, affecting the outcomes of experiments that were just breathtaking to me. Amazing. And again, that's a writer who's been around for a while and only occasionally risen to just kind of general notice in terms of awards and, and, and sales. But but she's always been a compelling writer, I thought. Gilman. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah, I loved her duo I loved her duology, the the and Miles duology. Uh, her book is another one that's in my pile of, of books that I really want to get to, but uh, I've heard amazing things about it. And actually, I just wanted to point out that 
I didn't actually read either Aurora or Seven Eves, but we reviewed them jointly on io9 and kind of talked about the same sort of stuff. I think Annalie Newitz uh, reviewed them, uh, the Stevenson book and the Kim Stanley Robinson book together as kind of one entity or as like being kind of in conversation with each other. So I think that that's a really, you know, it's a great point to make and it's a really like, it is interesting how they kind of play off each other. What I think is really, in- sorry, Nisi, go ahead. Nisi, go I was just going to say, I was just they, they did not each other I, I know, I know from talking to Stan that they did not, you know, purposely say, oh, I know, let's write about this kind of thing. Right. That that doesn't surprise me at all. But what I think is really interesting is the way that what you happen to read creates the impression of a conversation. You know, I happen yeah. to I happen to read uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's uh, The Water Knife immediately prior to reading Aurora, and those two books felt to me intensely in conversation. I think they're both two of the best books of the year. I think they're both about practically living with the realities of the universe we're faced with and the planet we're faced with and the importance of, of, of saving it. One written by someone writing a deliberately alarmist thriller and one, the primary ut- utopian in the history of, of our field, writing a challenging book that talks about why it's critical we pay attention to the earth we're living on. You know, in fact, if I were to say, you know, look at a trend in the books I've read and, and thought were amongst the best in the year, I see it in the books you've both read, Charlie, Charlie Chan and Nisi, and what you talked about last year, last week, Gary, it's that it does seem to me, and it may just be a false impression, there are all kinds of really serious, substantial issues that science fiction seems more and more willing to engage with in major works that it wasn't engaging in, in a decade ago. I mean, you're talking, there's been several now major works. You're, you, I mean, you mentioned the Caroline Ive Gilman book mm-hmm. that deal with disability. There's a lot, you know, more and more dealing with climate. Uh, there's some dealing about, with, with the practicality of the dream of the mission of science fiction in books like, like Aurora. I think it's a really encouraging trend that you get these major books that talk about these really interesting, substantial issues. Yeah. I, I, I tend to think it's interesting because I'd not thought about Seven Eves being in dialogue with with Aurora. I think Aurora is very deliberately a critique of a science fiction, of a, of a sacred science fiction trope. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very hard-nosed critique of the idea that we can, we can escape on a generation starship. Seven Eves struck me as being almost the opposite approach to science fiction. It's uh, because I, it, there are lots of orbital mechanics in it, and he works that out, but he works that out partly to disguise the fact that the essential premise of the book is completely absurd. I mean, basically, I've got an engineer friend who, who doesn't... The, the whole business of the moon blowing up into seven pieces and the number seven recurring, and then finally realized, I finally realized, unfortunately, long after I reviewed it, that this isn't a hard science fiction novel. This is a creation myth. This is using the materials of science fiction to create that kind of awe-inspiring sense of wonder you used to get from Clark and so forth and so on. But it's not really addressing any of the issues that we're facing in the way that Bacigalupi or, or um, Kim Stanley Robinson are. I mean, we're not well, imminently think- in danger of the moon b- being broken into seven pieces, are we? No. Uh, no, no, but uh, it is a, a fam- favorite starting point for many a geek, for many a nerd. Oh, yeah. Yes. So. Okay. Oh, but- yeah. That's only four books I have 
Well, I have two more. But okay. No, 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 no. Go ahead, please. We'd love to hear what the others are. Okay. Well, um, China Mieville's Three Moments of an Explosion. Uh, a lot of the, the short stories in this collection of his have been previously published, but they were published as handouts at galleries or in right. really, really obscure places. Uh, so I had not seen a lot of them, though I've read a lot of China. And um, my favorite story in that was uh, Sakin, which is a sort of a really horrific take on the Brementown musicians. Yeah. <laughs> That's about all I can say about that one um, without completely wrecking it for anybody to read it. Uh, and then, of course, because probably because I was a co-editor of it, uh, Stories for Chip, um, what a great book! <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you now about there, that, Nisi, because... Uh, go ahead. No, no, you. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say, uh, this is, I mean, it's, 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 it's overdue. I'm glad it was done. Uh, Chip Delaney's, for people who... There may be people out there who, who aren't aware that we're talking about Samuel R. Delaney, one of the grandmasters of science fiction and of science fiction criticism and of various other things. And I've noticed in the past few years there was a book of tribute stories. There's been one for Ray Bradbury. There's been one for Gene Wolfe. There's been one for Silverberg. And I always wonder, so I can ask you now as an editor and, and as an author, how do you write a tribute story in an anthology like this, and I know there are different strategies, but I want to hear you talk about it, because on the one hand, if you're writing a tribute to, to, to Chip Delaney or Gene Wolfe, the worst thing in the world, it seems to me, is to try to sound like Chip Delaney or Gene Wolfe. You can't do that. So what? how did writers approach that problem for you? Well, one of them actually, I think, did pull that off. Hal Duncan uh, did I do a, a particularly uh, sort of a, a recapitulation of one period of Delaney's work. So I thought he pulled uh, that off, uh, obviously, or it wouldn't be in the book. But yeah. most of them were, were uh, dealing with ideas or they were uh, bringing in uh, concepts that they knew about because Delaney had introduced them to these concepts. Um, I can't tell you the number of people who's, who came up who came up with the idea of putting in ragged and bitten fingernails, which is uh, a, one of Delaney's fetish. And we had to kind of cut back on the um, cuticle wear there. You know, the cuticle <laughs> kink was, it would have been really overdone. Um, uh, when The one that Nalo and I wrote together, Nalo Hopkinson and I collaborated, she had the idea for the premise and... Um, I was the one that said, well, you know, okay, so the story uh, robot can be uh, reading a story that's uh, sort of a revision of They Fly at Syria and and Uh. so on and so forth. So, you know, mainly I think um, as the introduction by Stan says, it was just uh, to try and get across the feeling of joy and delight that we had been um, that had been aroused in us by reading Delaney. We wanted to transfer that to other people. Right. Excellent. Uh, 
It's just very persuasive because it's 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 interesting to try to, to you want yeah you want to try to convey the sense of discovery that that you had in uh, in reading Delaney and I think yeah that's that's a lot different from from trying to write pastiches. Um, one of the most interesting stories and it's a it's a book that uh, that you mentioned Charlie. One of the most interesting stories to me and. Um, and get into trouble in the Kelly Link thing was a story she wrote for the Bradbury anthology, Two Houses. Oh, right, has, yeah. It has That's bits of Bradbury story. prose in it, but it's completely a Kelly Link story. Yeah, I loved that story. I mean, that whole book, it's been a while since I read it, but it's just, it's so, you know, sort of triumphantly weird, but also it's some of her most emotional work, I think, that, uh-huh. that book. Right. Some of her most kind of, you know, Character-driven and emotional, and, and just you know, bursting with, with personality. I would have to agree. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really, it actually was a, a pretty incredible year for short story collections all around. I mean, it's easy to skip around. I mean, but Get in Trouble was a is, was a terrific book, or is a terrific book, and easily one of the best books of the year. The China Medieval book that you were mentioning, Nisi, is also an extraordinary collection. Neil Gaiman had one of his, a very interesting, if always kind of mixed kind of a book and you can mm. look around the field and there's a, a real selection of really incredible stories which obviously well which yeah. I, I see obviously as, as being a reflection of just how strong the overall <laughs> short fiction market is which which helps uh, yeah yeah oh and uh um falling in love with hominids by nala hopkins yes that's another absolutely one. yeah yeah the other thing that I that I thought was in, incredibly encouraging is all of a sudden it feels like in the last twelve months I'm seeing more and more science fiction coming out of Africa. I'm really reluctant to call it African science fiction because that so oversimplifies. But certainly, you know, there, there's there's anthologies, there's magazines, there's websites, and it feels as though maybe you know that, that suddenly you can actually hear the, you know voices from there. And get that kind of an impression of the, the kind of fantastical world that that part of the world is familiar with. Yeah, I think you're right. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, it's 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 a conversation I've had. I've had this conversation with Nettie more than once, and she's absolutely right. And I, I, I can't blame you, Jonathan, because you live in Australia and you've got a continent to yourself. You've got one country, one country, one continent. It's easy to figure out. Nettie has explained to me that no, Kenyan science fiction is not the same as Nigerian science fiction, and neither one of them are anything like South African science fiction. I I, I can believe that. Since we've talked a little about books, I'm interested to sort of throw out to both of you uh, as well uh, your impressions about other science fiction and fantastical things that you've encountered during the year? I mean, t- maybe to sort of give you a chance to sort of think about it for a second before before I throw it to you. I mean, from my, from, you know, my own perspective, having read a fantastic batch of novels, you know, because, I mean, I, sh- I share recommendations off both of your lists. I mean, Aurora is one of my favorite books of the year. The Water Knife was, Get in Trouble was, and so on. I, and, and I'm really, actually, I have to say, Charlie Jane, very, very excited about reading The Entropy of Bones, which I've been meaning to get to and is on my own to-read pile. And I share your recommendation about the, Ka- the Kaya Shante Wilson uh, novella or novel Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, or Wild Deeps, Wild Deeps, I don't know. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we saw some incredible television. And nor- you know, I- I- I'm not enough of a snob to say that I'm surprised at that because I'm not, but I thought that Jessica Jones was terrific. 
thought it was really interesting and substantial and talked about all, had all kinds of issues in it that were terrific. I really en- enjoyed Daredevil. I enjoyed Agent Carter, all of which seemed to me far more than I ever would have expected from a su- set of superhero stories. Uh, much more you know, substantial. Um, and a, a smattering of films, uh, some great comic books. I'm reading you know, Paper Girls by Brian Vaughan, which I think is great. I'm loving uh, Scotty Young's I Hate Fairyland. There's a whole bunch of things out there that are just really interesting and rewarding and really contribute to my own feeling that anybody who can't find enough stuff to entertain themselves and engage themselves in our field really isn't trying very hard. So... Charlie Jane, how about you? How is the the broader field for you? I mean, I think in general this year, uh, the big story has been the the rise of of sort of non broadcast television, um, and particularly, um, you know, you mentioned those Netflix shows, Jessica Jones, Daredevil, um, and also, um, you know, we just got Man in the High Castle on Amazon, mm. and and a handful of other things like that. Um, I think that, you know, television is really, this was the year that the evolution of television really caught up to science fiction and, and started to give us the kind of stuff that, uh, and I think we're about to get 112263, the, the Stephen King that's, adaptation. That's coming up in January, yes. Yeah, that's going to be And we great. already have, we should add, we already have um, Childhood's End and we have um, the, the Expanse based on the James S.A. Corey novels. Yeah, I mean, the, the sci-fi, the sci-fi network or whatever has been making a much greater effort to try to be serious again and try to do real, you know, serious storytelling, which is great. Uh, but I also think, yeah, the big story is is um, these kind of alternative channels, alternative distribution channels. And, you know, meanwhile, with movies uh, viewing on demand, like for smaller movies, the view on demand market has just gotten more and more important. And, you know, I think among the people I know who saw Ex Machina, which was one of my favorite movies of the year by far, um, most of them, I think, saw it in their homes on, on, you know, on video on demand services. I don't know too many people who went to see it in the theater. Um, so I think that in general, alternative distribution channels are really opening up the, the field for a lot of more interesting storytelling. Okay. And Nisi, how about you? Did you, did you get a, have an impression of anything beyond you know the written word that was of interest? Well, uh, I don't have the television, and I don't pay much attention to uh, television shows or films. Um, I there are two things that I think um, I can mention in connection with this. Uh, one is an issue of. Um, a magazine, a, a quarterly that I help edit. I edit reviews for the Cascades of Production. We just yep. did a uh, uh, graphic novel. Yep. Uh-huh. So, uh, so there, I had my my mind broadened. Um, there was a review of Ava's Demon, which is a web comic, which was fascinating. So. I, I was able. I was drawn into it a little bit because of that. And then the other thing that's going on that's related is um, the Tip Tree Fellowship. Uh, is the Tip Tree Award, which is for uh, prose, is for uh, fiction, for written mm-hmm. word. But fellowship is for uh, something that's still a work in progress, and it's very specifically aimed at 
perks that are not just filled with words, uh, with music, uh, games, and other uh, forms of art uh, given a privileged position. So this year, um, there were two fellowships handed out, one to Walida Imarisha uh, to help her put together a collection of poetry, and the other to Elizabeth Laponce, uh, who's a visual artist uh, from, from, I think, from Minnesota. She's uh, an American Indian, and she does uh, games and videos, but she's also doing just static visual art. So it sure is fantastic, and it's bound to... Um, the fellowship is bound to to uh, attract more attention and give more support to the kinds of work that don't have to do with just written words. Yeah. Interesting. And how about you, Gary? Did you have any? Sorry, continue, Gary. Well, no, I was going to just follow up on that a little yeah. bit because I'm. Uh, there's always, to me, it's not something that's necessarily. My field, I mean, I minored in art history as an undergraduate, but, but it, it struck me that fantastic art has, and to some extent, uh, always, at least in the 20th century, had a weirdly parallel career with fantastic fiction. It's been exiled from the mainstream in a way that it wasn't in the 19th century. In the 19th century, you would have Odeon Ridon doing fantastic paintings. You would have uh, uh, oh, just about any major painter you could uh, name including the Pre-Raphaelites, uh, doing fantastic art. And now it seems, and for a long time, I'd look at these anthologies called Spectrum that come out every year of the best in fantastic art that Darnie Fenner does. And it's, there's some terrific stuff in there, but there's been this barrier between visual art in the gallery sense and the sort of display sense that you get in New York and San Francisco and the genre sense. And some major artists in our field, Richard Powers was celebrated at the last Worldcon as one example, have, have, have had a hard time gaining a handle in the mainstream art world. And I guess what this is a question partly for you, Nisi. Do you think that, that, that this Tip Tree Fellowship, going to a visual artist, might help uh, bridge that barrier? I surely hope so. I surely hope so. Um, the money will help her do work. But also, um, we need to get to the point where uh, we, we have people presenting her with, I don't know, a giant rainbow or a coin or something, uh, something symbolic that will make people notice what's going on. Uh-huh. That's very encouraging. I'm glad the tip tree is moving out. Yeah. Uh, we should yeah. mention... Probably for the fourteenth time on this podcast, but it's the last chance we get to do this in twenty fifteen. We are in the centennial of Alice Sheldon's birth this year. Yes, it is. Yeah, and and the centennial of Lee Brackett's birth, which I like to throw in there also, because <laughs> we now have the Force Awakens opening as we record this. Uh, it's already open as we record this, with a screenplay partly by Lawrence Kasdan who was the only screenwriter to collaborate with Lee Brackett on her version of The Empire Strikes Back before she died. Yes. Right, right, right. Oh. Indeed. 
So, I guess the natural thing to sort of maybe move towards winding up the conversation with a little bit, and we're by no means done, is I'm curious as to both of your feelings about how 2016 may treat us, whether you're feeling optimistic for the kind of fiction that we might find, whether there's anything in particular you're looking forward to already. Uh, I mean, I've got a list of 50 books, and in fact... I finished the, you know, last week's podcast about the best of the year feeling. There's nothing, nothing, no really substantial books that I can really think of off the top of my head. I wrote a list of 50, then people mentioned another 30 or 40 to me. So I, my, it's my own feeling that, that not only is there an enormous amount of interesting fiction and art and ex, you know, expression coming to us in the coming 12 months, but there's more than I actually know to expect you know, it's it's always the you know the item that you I mean the two things I find reward you at the end of the year is where a writer that you follow delivers a great work which I think Stan Robinson did with Aurora during the year but also someone that you've never really been familiar with very much comes out and left fields you with a work that you could never have expected I mean I was aware of say Kai, Kai Shante Wilson but the Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps was a breath of fresh air in many ways and so were a bunch of other books like uh, uh, the you know, the f- watchmakers of, of Filigree Street and a couple of others. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, how are you feeling about the coming year, Charlie? I mean, I'm I'm excited about it. Uh, I think there's a lot of really good stuff. I, I don't I don't have the list where I think we have a preliminary list of, of books for 2016 somewhere around here. I, I didn't pull it up because I thought we were doing year in review, but. Uh, but I, I'm excited about, um, there's a bunch of books coming out that look good. China Mieville has a novel coming out. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a, a few others that uh, are clearly like early favorites for, for this coming year that are, are looking really good. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's it's a good time to be a fan. I think there's a lot of really interesting publishers to really interesting stuff. And, you know, it's just some really interesting authors hitting their stride. Yep. And Nisi, how about you? Uh, how are you feeling for two th- for 2016? I am so excited. <laughs> my first novel this year. Congratulations. <laughs> it's on my list of yeah. things I'm looking forward to seeing. Oh, good. Uh, well, it's, it, that's, it's, it's on my list of books I'm looking forward to seeing. I can't wait to see it come out. Yeah, me too. I also have. There are other people's books that I'm also looking forward to. Um, <laughs> I I read an arc of Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, uh, and it is one of the most audacious books I have ever read. Really? Uh, because yes, the premise is that uh, racism is a horrible monster. Um, Literally, and um, that, that the entire U.S. is Lovecraft country, basically. Uh, and it's written from the point of view of several black characters. It's uh, set in the 1950s, so they're dealing with Jim Crow. Matt Ruff is a white guy, okay? But uh-huh. uh, he pulled off these people's viewpoints and voices uh, to my deep satisfaction. Um, I, I just can't rave about that one enough. Lovecraft Country. I'm also looking forward to a new novel from Sophia Samatar, um, On the Wings of History, it's called. Winged History. Mark. It's, yeah. it's, it's several months away, but 
I really, really am looking forward to that one. Yeah. And then Everfair, my novel. Yay. Yeah. Which actually was the next thing I was going to ask. I actually was going to say, you're both... debut novelists in 2016 congratulations to you both that must be a pretty exciting thing charlie that must be a pretty exciting thing for you it's it's honestly terrifying (laughs) i mean you know see how it goes it's it's, i feel like there's a lot of pressure but um you know so far people seem to like it and i'm 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 enjoying having this weird thing come out of my brain and then you know start to be kind of in other people's brains. I think that's a really fascinating, thrilling process. So, you know, it's going to be exciting. Excellent. And it's a lot of fun. I shouldn't say that because it's, <laughs> because I have read it, as you know. Oh. Um, so, I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of fun in fantasy. I mean, one of the things, uh, I, I think, uh, well, there's Nisi or Charlie, but I know we mentioned it last week. Uh, Jonathan mentioned it last week. Yeah. The Zen Cho's novel, uh, Sorcerer to the King, is apart from the fact that it deals with it deals with gender issues, it deals with colonialism, it deals with racism, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. And I've decided that for 2016, I'm in favor of novels that are fun. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's re- Okay, I love that, but that's ridiculous because, I mean, okay, one of the best books of 2014 that was published in the U.S. in 2015, I think, was Lagoon by Nadia Okorafor. You mentioned it earlier, Nisi, I think. And great book, but just enormous fun. I mean, really. I mean, it's not a new thing to get books that are enormous fun. I think we're going to have to wait far too long for uh, for Zen's second novel, but I'm but I'm very eager for it. Um, yeah, very very eager. Now I know that All the Birds in the Sky, which is Charlie's debut novel, comes out in January, which means it'll probably start showing up in stores in the United States very very soon. And Nisi, when does your book come out? It comes out in September. And how come I don't have a review copy of of your book, Charlie? <laughs> I don't know. That's I don't. That's crazy. I can. I, I, I will. Yeah. Can, Charlie, you got to pay attention to Nisi. There are only a handful of regular book reviewers for newspapers in the United States left. Oh so we just yeah. some respect. Okay. Bye. Yeah. No, I, I don't know how that happened. I, I'm going to try to remedy that immediately. <laughs> but I want to go back Thank to you. I want to go back to a point that Nisi was making earlier about. Um, about Lovecraft Country, because one of the things that struck me is, uh, is, is I'm enjoying a lot, and it's not really a 2015 thing, although it is, uh, but the Kaya Shanti Wilson, I think, is part of the series. I, I am really enjoying the Tor.com uh, paperbacks. Uh, and part of because... Yeah, and, but one of them that's coming out, I think, in, if I'm not wrong, February, uh, is one that that you reminded me of, Nisi, when you mentioned Lovecraft Country, and this Victor Laval is the Ballad of Black Tom. Oh and I God, think that's I... important. It's, they're important for a couple of reasons. One, it's the Victor Laval novel. He's always been published as a mainstream writer. Uh, his, um, what was his earlier novel, The Big, um, the Big Machine, uh, was, I think it was a finalist for a World Fantasy Award. Now he's being published by Tor.com, and he's being published with a novella, which is essentially a rewriting of what may be Lovecraft's single most racist story, the horrid Red Hook, written from the perspective of a black protagonist. And it's a wonderful balance between celebrating what's good about Lovecraft and being appalled at what's horrible about Lovecraft in the same story. We're we're really wrestling Lovecraft, I guess, right now. We're really struggling with Lovecraft. There's also Austin Grossman's Crooked, which came out recently. Right. Uh, which is Lovecraftian. 
you know, it seems like, and obviously we just finally got rid of him as the World Fantasy Award, you know, head. I think it's really fascinating to see us, everybody kind of trying to come to grips with him. But I'm interested well, I mean, with Actually, I can, I, I just, because I happen to have a copy of it right here, uh, I can read the dedication of Victor Lavelle's novel uh, called The Ballad of Black Tom. It says, for H.P. Lovecraft, with all my conflicted feelings. Perfect. <laughs> 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 exactly right. Well, I was going to ask. I mean, given the, you know the work we're discussing, and given you know the history of the genre as we know it, will Lovecraft ever stop being a lens through which we can discuss issues of interest? Because it seems as though, however you turn him around, I know there are people who are concerned that his place in the field will diminish because, for some reason, he's being given less respect or attention. Uh, an argument that I don't think has any merit at all, but. It does seem to me that there is no lens through which you can't. You know, there's no, no lens which you can't look with Lovecraft and see something else. And I don't think he's ever going to disappear for that reason, even if we may always be conflicted. Yeah. You know. Have to. Have to I, say. I, I, he's gonna go ahead. But yeah, now I'm dying well, to my, Black Tom and Lovecraft Country. I mean, those that's. You know, it's it's an interesting uh, to see those both come on the line. Yeah. I think what Lovecraft. Uh, there's yeah. a kid. Uh, there's a Kitch Johnson uh, book in the the Tor dot com series as well. Um, uh, I can't remember. It's called the Dream Quest the, of Velvet Bow, and I know because I'm editing it, and I've got a draft copy of it here. Ah. She was reading. She was reading that at a party that I went to. She gave a sort of a private reading of it. So, yeah, more feminism. Whoa, that's, well, that's, well, that kind of class is well, well, One of the things that I, that I really love is when somebody comes in to add a new perspective to something, and they change it completely. I mean, Kidge is a remarkable writer as well as a wonderful person. The Dream Quest developed Bo is fascinating. And, of course, she's also done her take on Wind in the Willows, which I assume will come out later this, yeah. this coming in 2016, which is a whole, like, 60,000-word novel about, you know, so that recasts sort of li life on the riverbank from the perspective of two lesbians who move in across the, ba uh, across the river. <laughs> and should be... <laughs> And it's, it's quite interesting. But the thing is, I think so. What, what Kidge is doing is is essentially similar to what um, you see a number of writers doing with Lovecraft. My sense of Lovecraft is of, 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 of his survivability is similar to what I think has happened to Rudyard Kipling over the last fifty years or so. Because Kipling won a Nobel Prize. He was, if I'm not mistaken, possibly the first science fiction writer or the first person who had written science fiction to win a Nobel Prize for Literature. And then at some point, realized, people realized, this is a horrible, colonialist, racist writer who celebrated... Uh, Gunga Din is his you know, classic sort of... Sometimes, sometimes black Indians are actually good people. And then there's all the... And then we went through that period of reestablishing Kipling's reputation, realizing, yes, there are really horrible things about it, and then coming out the other end and realizing... On the other hand, there's the Jungle Book. On the other hand, there's the fact that he's a really good storyteller. Uh, there are there are different ways of reading Kipling uh, that 
that sort of resurrected him. So he, he went through the same kind of period. Now, actually, to sort of put a footnote on that, think that Kipling is and always will be a much greater writer than Lovecraft, and that Kipling had a much more complicated attitude toward race, uh, specifically race and colonialism, than Lovecraft did. But nevertheless, we're at a point now where people are beginning to look at the Jungle Book and saying, well, maybe there's more to that than we thought. And you have people like Neil Gaiman rewriting a version of it with a graveyard book. Hmm. Nice to show. Always something more to think about. But we're pro- we actually probably are coming you know, towards the, to the end of our hour and the end of our recording year. I think, uh, Gary, you joined me in thanking both Nisi and Charlie Jane for spending time with us to talk about the best of the year. Uh, we will shortly be putting up a podcast with Charlie Jane where we talk about other things, and we do have to get around to talking about uh, the new novel. And Nisi obviously will be in touch. You know, we'll talk with you later in 2016, closer to the time when Everfair is going to come out, when maybe we've had a chance to get a sneak peek at it. Yeah, well, yeah this, sure. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. So thank you both very much. And Gary, we find ourselves here at the end of 2015, another great year of re- reading with 50-something hours of conversation safe, safely behind us. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down down every week. Um, well, thanks as well. I mean, this is... This, now, now you're going to make me get nostalgic because how long have we been doing this podcast? Five now? years. Five years. Oh, my God. Yeah. There, there are children who can talk now who were not born then. <laughs> So we've been doing it for far too long, and it's been fun. It's been fun. And um, we'll continue doing it. But we always find new people. This is uh, it, it amazes me that this is the first time either Nisi or Charlie Jane has been on, and we apologize to both of you for not having invited you sooner because you're delightful guests. Yes, thank you both. And to, to, to all of our listeners, thank you again for staying with us during 2015. We look forward to seeing you in 2016. In the meantime... I, I don't know how it sits appropriately, but first of all, I hope you have a very happy holiday season and a wonderful new year, Char- Charlie, Jane, and Nisi. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays. And happy holidays, happy holidays to all of our listeners. Happy holidays to you, Gary. And the same to you, Jonathan. When we, and we remain, now as always, the Kutchit Podcast. The Kutchit Podcast. <laughs>